I wonder what crosses your minds when the words Pharisees and Sadducees are mentioned. We know that Jesus berated them as we heard. He spoke down to them and called them names that you would not expect the Son of God to say. Jesus must have had strong reasons to have done so. So who were these people? Today we can have rose-tinted glasses that cannot consider why such authorities would want the death of Jesus. Why would a man who gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, and fed thousands be put to death on a cross aged 33? And the, the truth is that men desired the Christ's death that they conspired for it, planned it, and plotted it, seeing Jesus as a danger, a threat even. But that is human nature, to take out a threat or, or something that is against a viewpoint held by another. As we currently know, it does not have to be a threat to take out someone just a country seeking independence from a past-controlling regime. At such times, allies gather together on each side. But let us consider why so many people sought after the death of Jesus. So who should we consider first? Let us begin with the Pharisees and hear why they wanted the death of Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out immediately and conspired with Herodians against him how to destroy him. And you've got to question why? What, what had previously happened to cause such a reaction? Jesus has healed a paralytic, he'd had table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. He'd healed a man with a withered hand. But throughout this, the Pharisees questioned him and criticized him. You see, these Pharisees were religious men. Some would say the best of the race, having grown up in a school of thought and a body of teachers. This was done mainly between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It has even been said that the Jews would have become pagan long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, had it not been for them. You see, long gone had Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, or Ezekiel. And here the Pharisees filled the gap in their absence. Their theology, standing in the Mosaic and prophetic tradition, Jesus was quoted as saying, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, a place where you sat down to judge. Yet they were not priests, or very rarely, for nobody could be a priest who was not descended from a priestly family. So you were born into priesthood. Now, the Pharisees were rather teachers and preachers and guardians of the law. 
They ran the schools and the synagogues and also became the conscience of the Hebrew people. Without question, the average Pharisee was a man of high moral character and sincere, but leaning towards a strict side. The Jews were God's chosen people, and they believed they should be separate to the point of not eating with the Gentiles or even doing business with them. And the thought of intermarriage with a non-Jew was repugnant horror to them. Many of you will remember Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. If you have your Bibles with me, with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. On page 78 at the back. I'm going to read from verse 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now accuse the Pharisee of what you like, but he was not a liar or a blackmailer. He would fast a week, uh, sorry, would fast twice a week on a Monday and a Thursday, and tithe all that he owned and even subject himself to a strict set of rules. So how did these men get into conflict with Jesus? Clearly in the New Testament Gospels, we see them in poor light as we heard in that passage that Roy read. And many rabbis resent the picture that the New Testament gives of the Pharisees. However, we must consider that it is possible to say things which are perfectly true concerning other people while yet being selective to the point of being biased. I read of W.E. Sangster, who shocked someone by saying that he was a Methodist. While this man had no church experience, he felt strongly about Methodists saying, those are the people who take from the working men's pint from him and his pools. They preach an ugly, repressive creed and are only heard in public when they want to oppose something. Now, there may be some truth in that viewpoint, but it is distorted. We should be glad to be a Baptist. So you can sense why the rabbis feel that this has happened to the Pharisees 
in every situation, they disagree with Jesus. And yet the question remains, why were they at odds with Jesus? Now, I believe there are five reasons to consider here. Firstly, they were angered by Christ's authority. We believe he spoke with authority, that he came from God the Father, and that he spoke for God the Father. It was noted immediately that he teaches with, as one with authority, and not as the scribes. <clears throat> it was this that offended the Pharisees, who were educated men and leaders, who expected others to follow them and respect them. Not someone who opposed them. So they began to ask, Who is he anyway? He's a carpenter from Nazareth who speaks with a Galilean accent. He's never been properly educated. He's only been to one of those synagogue schools. He's neither gra uh, graduated from a scribal college nor sat at the feet of rabbis. I wonder. I wonder if they heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or, I wonder if they heard, I and the Father are one. So their anger at Jesus was primarily because of his authority. Secondly, they were angry because of Jesus' universalism. Universalism not in the sense that People today use it by everybody going to heaven. But rather that as the Jews were God's chosen people, it was not meant for the Gentiles. However, Jesus himself said that he came first to the Jews, but not to them only. So what began in Jerusalem was to be shared with the whole world. Nowhere in Jesus' teaching do we see doctrines of racial superiority. He had time for the Samaritan woman at the well and others. So the Pharisees were angry with him because he appeared to belittle their separateness and spiritual superiority of their race. <clears throat> Thirdly, they were angry because of Jesus' indifference to some aspects of their puritism. Notice it's only to some aspects. If tax collectors and sinners had a party and invited Jesus, he went. When Matthew gave up his former life, he held a party for his friends and Jesus was there. Sometimes he even invited himself. Think of Zacchaeus in Jer Jericho. Such a thing was unthinkable to the Pharisees. In fact, to some who believed he might be a prophet of God, they were surprised that by saying, he has gone into the house of tax collectors and sinners, was something they would not expect or imagine. 
or even consider. And fourthly, they were angry at him because his attacks on them. My first ever sermon was on Matthew 23, which Roy read. It didn't last long. It probably didn't last as long as Roy's reading of it. But the severity of Jesus' words still sting today. I remember I had two milk bottles, glass milk bottles, the tall ones, not the small pint ones we've seen in more latter years. And one of them was painted inside, and the other one was a normal pint of milk. And I remember having this bowl and offering milk to the congregation to drink. And of course, the one that had been painted on the inside was full of mud, sludge, worms even. And as I poured it into the glass, they were amazed that this milk-colored bottle produced all that was there. That's basically what the Pharisees were like. What they appeared on the outside was not what was on the inside. Jesus called them hypocrites to their face. face. In fact, five times in a few verses, he calls them blind guides and whitewashed tombs. So you can understand why they were angry with Jesus. Fifthly and lastly, they were angry at Jesus because of his popularity. You see, the crowds heard him gladly. Yet in the hearts of the Pharisees being intellectuals, they despised one with their mind, but while admiring with another. Secretly, they themselves seek applause and approval. But how do you go from anger to seeking his death? Simply by allowing anger to become blasphemy. They saw his authority as blasphemy. He puts himself in the place of God. Surely he is not loyal to his own race. It is said that a person is known by the company they keep. So having the approval of the crowd and having denounced the Pharisees, they saw him as a threat and a danger to the nation. So he must be destroyed. Interestingly, when something like this happens, you find unexpected allies. People you might normally have disliked nor wanting the same thing. But in this situation, it brought them in line with the Herodians and with the Sadducees. And finally, Rome. So they went to work and so began the greatest crime of all history. So what can we learn from all this? A quick answer would be how easy it is for good people to go wrong. You can be an upholder of the law, a close student of the Torah. You can live a morally good life, but go terribly and tragically wrong like the Pharisees did. We too must be careful. We might be followers of Jesus and led by the Holy Spirit. 
Let me ask you a question. What if a young unmarried woman lets you know that she is pregnant? May we not judge her for her failings, but extend her open arms and help her back to God? What about holding strong moral grounds on the perils of alcohol and having a broken man share with you that he is an alcoholic? Should we not lead him back to a life of discipline, self-control? You see, the, the Pharisees had lost their tenderness. However, if we lose our tenderness, then we are more guilty than the Pharisees because we have Jesus as our example. We turn now to the Sadducees. Now, we don't know for certain where the word Sadducee came from, though some scholars believe it originated in the name of Zadok, a priest, the period of David and Solomon. But what we do know is that Sadducees were formed about 200 years before the birth of Christ. When the Jews returned from exile, they relied upon their priests as they had no king. In fact, they had no desire for a king, but wanted a theocracy more than a monarchy. Yes, they wanted a community that was ruled over by God, but through his priests. In those early days, the priests deserved the fame and influence because they brought together a broken people. In fact, they became the Jewish aristocracy. No one could belong to a higher order of priests. However, they were prone to stubbornness and resisted change and kept themselves apart from others. So these priests were not only the spiritual leaders of the people, they were their statesmen too. As often happens, politics overtook spiritual guidance, and sadly these men became self-seeking. Eventually the Sadducees became the pawns of the Romans, as they needed position and security. So they kowtowed to the emperor and his officers. In the time of Jesus, their head was the high priest, Caiaphas. But how did the Sadducees come into conflict with Jesus? In the Gospels, there is little reference to the Sadducees. But it is easy to understand why, because they felt like a song that we sing, that they were high and lifted up. You see, they were priestly aristocracy, where to them, the man of Nazareth was just a street preacher. The Sadducee is only mentioned nine times in the Gospels, seven in Matthew, one in Mark, and one in Luke. Now it was a Pharisee that Jesus first encountered. And for his early ministry, the Sadducees did not even notice him. That is, until Jesus cleansed the temple upon finding cattle and birds for sale there. 
You see, the priests had given them permission for this and even took a percentage from it while they took a blind eye to this arguing that the, the law required sacrifices, the extortionate prices that the poor had to pay lined their luxury lifestyle. Yet they could turn a blind eye, eye to Jesus' actions. And one can only imagine the high priest received a messenger from the Pharisees. But normally the two sides had little to do with each other. They had a common bond to get rid of Jesus. But they were different in many ways. The Pharisees were Puritans while the Sadducees were not. The Pharisees were passionately moral and the Sadducees mildly moral. Pharisees were religious while the Sadducees were politicians. Pharisees were in touch with the people but the Sadducees remote from the people. But more than that, they differed in doctrine. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body, but the Sadducees didn't. There's a pun here, so they were sad, you see. But we'll go past that one. Having said this, it is hard to believe that anything could unite these two people. But one thing is for certain, the road that the Pharisee traveled on and the road that the Sadducee traveled on both met on a hill outside a city wall and the name of that hill was Calvary. However, it appears that after the raising of Lazarus, things came to a head. For a man four days in the grave had risen from the dead now the Sadducees did not believe it, despite many witnesses had seen the man pulling off the grave clothes as he came out. Only then did the Sadducees intervene and seek to arrest Jesus. Only then did Caiaphas utter the words, You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. So is there any relevance in this for us today? The history of the Sadducees show us how spirituality can be compromised by politics. The Church of Christ longs for Christian representation in government life, corporate business, and places of leadership. But such responsibility can come with a cost, with a position of power, overrides their faith. Where church politics overrules the desire for people to come to faith. However, there's one thing that we can do for those in authority over us, as we heard with Emmanuel, and that's to exercise the power of prayer it is our Christian duty to pray for those in power, be it our government, our church, or our monarchy. May we this week remember to pray for those who need our prayers. Amen.